Uh, my name is Reed Cappell, and I have the joy of getting to be the pastor of Trinity Fellowship. So if you're new, if you're a guest, if this is your first time with us, we're glad you're here. And so this is our, our second uh, Sunday of, of, of our public launch, and so thank you for being a part of this time with us. Um, and so if you were with us last week, uh, we started by looking at a passage in 1 Peter uh, that really was about focusing on what it means to present ourselves before the Lord. And, and what we looked at together was this idea that before we are called to a purpose, to a mission, to some kind of, of meaning in life, we are first and foremost called to a person. And that is absolutely true. And we believe that to be the person of Jesus. Uh, today, what we're going to do is I want to begin uh, really a, a series kind of looking at our values as a church. We're, we're a new church, and so there's a lot to kind of still learn and discover and figure out about who we are. And so as we continue on, um, I wanted to spend some time looking at who we are as a church. Uh, but before we do that, and the passages we're going to look at are what Vanessa read for us so beautifully this morning is from Isaiah 52 and Mark chapter 1. But before we jump into those passages, uh, I want to take a minute to pray. And so let's just take a moment to ask the Lord's blessing on the teaching and the hearing of his word. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the fact that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who has made yourself known to us. We see your beauty and your glory displayed in creation and what is made. We see your truth declared to us in the written word of Scripture, but we most beautifully see you in the person of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make known to us who you are and what it means for us to live our lives for you and before you in all things. And so, Lord, for those of us who are still unsure as to who you are and what it means to follow you, would you, would you lead us incrementally in small steps closer to you. For those of us, Lord, who are committed to you in your ways, may you deepen our faith, our convic- convictions, and our allegiance to you. And would this time be a time in which you make all of us more and more made in the image of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we were looking last week at this idea that we are first and foremost called to a person before we are called to a purpose. And and what I want to focus our time on now is that while we are first and foremost called to a person, we are no less called to a purpose. That that is very much an aspect of what it means to be committed to Jesus and to his church. And so what I'd like to do, as I mentioned, because we're kind of a newer congregation, I, I want to share information about who we are. And so if you have, if you're still kind of new to Trinity, which is all of us, um, you may not know that part of who we are, part of our identity is rooted in what we call our values. We have these five values that they, they are not the sum total of the Christian faith by any means, but they are a way for us to say these things rooted in scripture are what we want to build our church upon. And our values are, are as follows, gospel centrality. Holistic discipleship, multicultural family, mutual hospitality, and biblical justice. Now, now all of those things, like they're they're not the sum total of the Christian faith, as I mentioned, uh, but they do form kind of the guardrails of who we are as a church. Of, of what we want to build our church upon. And so what I'd like to do over the next few weeks is kind of take one value at a time and kind of show from Scripture why this is a value, why it is important to us, and why we are seeking to build Trinity upon these five 
values. And so today we're focusing on gospel centrality. And so the question that it should be rather obvious is, well, then what is the gospel? If this is a value and if it's meant to be central, then what is the gospel? And in a way to kind of explain that, I wanted to start with something that I find rather humorous and entertaining. So one of my many adventures on the Internet, um, I've come across this this hashtag called explain a movie badly. Now, it was popular like several years ago. Like, so I'm kind of like all of my humor is calcified way in the past. But, but this, this explain a movie badly, the way it works is I find them so hilarious. I spent way too much time doing this. But you basically take a movie and a plot line. And then by sharing information that's technically true, you butcher the plot line by, by giving a message uh, that just does not do it justice. So, for example, Lord of the Rings, a classic epic tale, three uh, three uh, movies, if you count the four, I guess The Hobbit. Uh, a, a way to explain that movie badly is a group of friends return a piece of jewelry for nine hours. <laughs> now, that's technically true. So if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, that, that's technically true. A group of people are trying to return the ring to Mordor. It's like, is that false? No, but it is a little bit misleading. It's, it's kind of a half-truth, okay? Uh, here's, here's one for Harry. If you've ever seen the Harry Potter series, this is also a great one. Harry Potter, a boy spends seven years being a third wheel. <laughs> now, again, if you've never seen Harry Potter, that may not be that funny to you, but Harry Potter basically is just always trying to hang out with Hermione and Ron and just perpetually the third wheel. And then this is one of my favorite. I'm saving it for last. Titanic, a rich girl lets a poor man freeze to death. So if you remember the end of Titanic, you know, like uh, uh, Rose or whatever her name is, let's go. Like, I'll never let you go, Jack. And then she just literally lets him go. It's like, now again, are those things true? Yes. They're technically true facts about those movies, but they do not do justice to those storylines. If you were the creator of these stories, you would believe you would see those summaries as being entirely misleading. And so in an attempt to try to explain the gospel, I want to do it first by explaining it badly. And so how would we explain the gospel badly? Here is one way that I think we don't do justice to the gospel. To explain the gospel badly would be to say this, that the gospel is that Jesus died to save you from sin and take you to heaven. To explain the gospel badly would be to say that the gospel is that Jesus died for your sin to take you to heaven. Now, is that true? Yes, that that is true in a manner of speaking. But when we settle for a rather individualistic and reductionistic message of the gospel that is only about my sin being forgiven so that I can have a personal relationship with Jesus and that I can go to heaven, we are reducing the gospel down to something that is not the total message. It is absolutely a part, but it is not the total message of the gospel. When we reduce the gospel down to Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you can go to heaven— What we are doing, we are guilty of what Dallas Willard referred to as believing in vampire Christianity. Dallas Willard says this. He says, a person, one one in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood that forgives us. And so so I'd like a little bit of your blood, blood, please. But I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? This is sometimes the way in which we reduce the gospel to just Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can go to heaven. 
And it doesn't really matter how I live my life. As long as I'm, as long as I'm good, as long as I've checked that box, as long as I've prayed that prayer, I'm solid. But this is not the fullness of what the gospel is. And so if we are to be a church rooted upon this value of what the gospel is, of gospel centrality, then we should be clear on what the gospel is. Now, don't hear me wrong. Again, that is part of it. Jesus, the son of God, who is fully God and fully man, did die on a cross and shed his righteous blood for our sins so that we might be forgiven. He rose victoriously from the grave so that eternal life is granted to all who believe in him. That is absolutely true. But that is a part of the gospel. And there's much more to it. When we reduce the gospel to that simple message, so to speak, we are guilty of taking a particular and applying it to the general. And that is not what the full gospel is. So if we are to be a people rooted in the gospel, what is it? And so if if there's one idea, if there's one kind of concept you take from our time together, I hope it is this. It is that the gospel is good news with a purpose. The gospel is good news with a purpose. As we mentioned last week, we are first and foremost called to a person before a purpose. That is 100% true. But we are also called to a purpose. And so, so again, in asking the question, then what is the gospel? How do we explain it and understand it? Well, let me try to give us some framing here. So so for some of you, this may not be new, uh, but that is not an excuse to check out. The moment we kind of say, yeah, 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 I've heard the gospel before, I'll wait until next week when it applies to me, that is the first sign that we still desperately need to remind ourselves of the gospel. Because the gospel is not something we move past or graduate from, but rather go deeply into in the rest of our life. So what is the gospel? Now, the, the word literally means the good news. That's literally what it is translated from in the original language of the Bible. It is the good news. But in most Christian settings, and particularly most uh, evangelical Christian settings, and I'm an evangelical Christian, but in most evangelical Christian settings, what tends to happen is that the gospel gets whittled down to only mean salvation. Now, salvation is a fancy theological term that literally describes the work of God saving us, of rescuing us from sin and death through Jesus. And while salvation is a beautiful thing that we should rejoice in, it is not the totality of the gospel. It is a part of it, and there is much more to it. Dr. Scott McKnight, in his book, The King Jesus Gospel, so if if this conversation is kind of intriguing to you, I I would highly commend this book to you. But Dr. Scott McKnight says this, We evangelicals mistakenly equate the word gospel with the word salvation. When we see the word gospel, our instinct is to think personal salvation. We are wired this way. But these two words, gospel and salvation, don't mean the same thing. And so, what is, so if the gospel, if, the, if salvation is a part of the gospel, but if the gospel isn't just salvation, then what is missing? And in a word, what is missing is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. There is no one verse in the Bible that really provides this kind of summary statement of what the gospel is, so to speak, that encompasses the totality of it. And and sometimes that's frustrating to us as people who are like, I want the Notes version, I want the summary, I want the executive summary of this, I want the 120 character tweet that explains the gospel. And yes, while there are things that can provide a summary, 
The Bible actually needs the total biblical storyline to explain what the gospel is. And so what I'd like to do is just look at two passages, one in the Old Testament, the, uh, the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, and then one in the New Testament, the gospel according to Mark. Vanessa read these for us, and so I want to show the full scope of the gospel by looking at these two passages. Now, just to set a little context, so Isaiah was a prophet appointed by God 700 years before the birth of Christ, and he is writing to um, Israel after they've been basically destroyed and sent into exile by, uh, by Babylon. Okay, so a little history. The nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was destroyed by the Babylonians. And many of them were taken into exile. But there were some Israelites that remained in Jerusalem and tried to live amongst the ruins after great devastation. And Isaiah is writing to them to encourage them. And here is what he brings them. In the midst of great devastation, we read these words in verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. In this passage, we see this, this introduction of this phrase, the good news. Now, the, the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew. And so there are particular words in Hebrew that we translate into English, and sometimes we miss the meaning of those words. And the the phrase that we have in our English Bible of the good news, that is the translation of a Hebrew word, besorah. Say that with me. Besorah. Very good. You're Hebrew scholars. Look at that. Brilliant. The word besorah, what it literally means is the royal declaration announcing the reign of a king. It's not just a general word for news or information. It is a particular word that is used to declare that a king is now reigning or that a king is still reigning. And so as Isaiah is declaring to these Israelites who are living in Jerusalem in the midst of the ruins, they're like, look, we've been defeated. There's no hope. There's no light around us. There is no sense of of hope on the horizon. And yet God is declaring to them through Isaiah There is good news. There is a Besorah. There is a king that reigns. What is the good news? It is that your God reigns. And so if I had, if you asked me to like, what is the most, the irreducible minimum? What is the base definition of what the gospel is? If you gave me two words, I would say that it is God reigns. Or to be more specific, to bring in the New Testament, Jesus reigns. The gospel is fundamentally news that tells us there is a king and he has a kingdom and that has massive implications for our life right now, not for the life we're waiting for as we twiddle our thumbs. The good news of the gospel is that there is a king and he reigns now and forever. And Isaiah doubles down on this in what he says in verse 8. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together, for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Zion is this term, it's a nickname, if you will, for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the place where the throne of God exists. 
And so fundamentally, if we're to understand what the gospel is at base level, if there's nothing you take, know that the gospel at base level is that God reigns. Isaiah is giving us a preview of what this good news will be. As the Bible story unfolds, we get more and more information, more and more detail as it continues to uh, bring about the, the culmination of the good news that comes to us in Jesus. So just imagine you are an Israelite living 700 years before Jesus, and you were asked, what is the good news of God? It is that he reigns, is that he is the king, and that there is a kingdom that he is bringing. Now, fast forward, we're skipping a lot of scripture here. Fast forward to the New Testament, and we come to the Gospels. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels because they are about the gospel. Like, you're kind of laughing about that, but because this is, this is so crucial to understand. We hear the word gospel, and our tendency is to think that it is only about what happens in the last couple chapters of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the thing that happens at the end of the gospel. That doesn't make sense. Mark chapter 1 opens with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Gospels are called the Gospels because they are an account of the Gospel, of the whole Gospel. To say that the Gospel is just what happens at the end, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, uh, it's a massively important part of the Gospel. But to say that that is the Gospel, again, is to take a particular and apply it to the general. It's like saying that rain is weather. Rain is not weather. Rain is a form of weather. Rain, weather does include rain, but rain is not weather. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins absolutely is a part of the gospel, but there's so much more to it. The gospel that Jesus is preaching is a continuation of the gospel that was being told from all the way back in the beginning. And that gospel is that God reigns. But as we get to the New Testament, the good news is that that God who reigns is now in the person of Jesus, the king. Just think about it for a second. When we see in in Mark chapter one that Jesus has come preaching the gospel, what is the gospel that he is preaching if the gospel of his death on the cross hasn't happened yet? Have you ever thought about that for a second? If the gospel is only what happens at the end, what is the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming before he goes to the cross? Now, just in Hebrew, uh, uh, just in Hebrew, that sounds like somebody's nickname. Not just in Hebrew. Sorry, my mind's weird. Uh, in the, the Hebrew word that's translated good news is Besorah. In Greek, in the New Testament, which is the main language that the, the Bible is written in, The word translated gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which is really fun. Say that one with me. Euangelion. It's so fun. You can name your child that if you're interested. So what that word means, again, just like besorah, euangelion has a special meaning. It was actually a military word. The euangelion was what the messenger brought back from the battlefield, declaring to the king and to the kingdom, we are victorious in battle. The messenger brought the euangelion, the news that there was victory and that the king is still king. If there was not victory in battle, the messenger would bring some bad news, which I don't know what that word is, uh, but would be bad news saying, hey, king, your kingship is probably nearing an end. And so the word that is used to describe the gospel 
is a decisive victory and a declaration that God is still king. And so when Jesus comes on the scene in verses 14 and 15 of Mark's gospel, we read these words. After John, the, John the Baptist, after he was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, proclaiming the euangelion, proclaiming the gospel of God. And he says this, the time is fulfilled. The time that was declared in Isaiah 52, that there is good news coming, that God reigns, that peace and salvation are here. That time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so what is this good news that Jesus is calling people to repent and believe in? It can't just be about his death and resurrection because that hasn't happened yet. The good news is that God still reigns, that he is king, and that he is bringing a kingdom here on earth and not simply interested in taking us away to some disembodied heavenly realm where we play harps wearing robes all the time. That's the picture we have sometimes of what the gospel is accomplishing. But when the gospel is the good news of the kingdom, we have a much wider scope of what Jesus is doing. And so when Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel, he's saying, repent, turn from your ways, turn from, yes, from your sinful actions, but also turn from all of the false and futile and corrupt kings and kingdoms that offer hollow promises and that never fulfill. And instead, believe in the true king whose kingdom is now and forever. So to believe in the gospel is to say that Jesus is king. It is also a way to say that Caesar is not. During this time when Jesus is coming on the scene, Rome was this powerhouse that ruled the world. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and is declaring himself king, he is slapping the power of Rome in the face and saying, you think you have power to reign and rule. You think you are the kingdom of this earth. I am here to declare that there is a new king and a new kingdom. N.T. Wright, who is a well-known New Testament scholar, in describing this, the, the news of the gospel that is not just about what happens at the end of the gospel, says this, the establishment of God's kingdom means the dethroning of the world's kingdoms, not in order to replace them with another one, basically the same sort, one that makes its way through superior force of arms, but in order to replace it with one whose power is the power of the servant and whose strength is the strength of love. When Jesus says that he is here to proclaim the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, he then goes on to display what that looks like. And the rest of the gospel is Jesus showing us in embodied form what life in his kingdom is. And it is about bringing healing to the sick. It is about drawing the repentant, the, the sinner, back into relationship. It is about caring for the oppressed. It is about feeding the hungry. And it culminates to this beautiful story that, co- that shows that what he has been declaring is actually authorized because Jesus goes to the cross to definitively and decisively pay the penalty of our sin and rise from the grave victoriously so that we might have life in him. The gospel is good news, but it is good news with a purpose here and now. So at the risk of sounding like a dork, which is like, like too late, uh, but what I want to do is I want to offer just a, a definition. 
And I know that definitions can feel really like nerdy and dorky, but I want us to have something to build from. And this is not like the definitive, like the Trinity Fellowship official definition of the gospel, but it's something to start with. And so what would I say? How, how would we define the gospel in its wide scope understanding? And I would say this, that the gospel, which should be the gospel of the kingdom, which is that's the gospel Jesus preached. The gospel of the kingdom is this. It is the good news that Jesus is the king who has made a way into his kingdom now and forever through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The gospel is first and foremost news that Jesus is king. And when that is our understanding of the gospel's beginning, it changes the way we think about our allegiances to any other power or king or kingdom in this world. That to be a follower of Jesus and a believer in the gospel, yes, absolutely requires a belief that your only hope in life and in death is in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave victoriously. But it is also a recognition that he is king, you are not, and neither is anyone or anything else. To keep the gospel central is to believe that Jesus is king. But so often, as I mentioned, we reduce the gospel to only being about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins so that I can have a personal relationship with him, so that I can be with him forever in heaven. And that's a very self-centered, very therapeutic way of thinking about the gospel. I like Jesus because he helps me feel better about myself and helps me live the life I want. That's a gospel that starts with us. But the gospel is about Jesus. So let me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to skip a lot of stuff here. I want to be sensitive to time. I, let, let me say this. I, I don't want you, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? What I'm not saying is that, hey, don't worry about the end of the gospel story of Jesus on the cross. That's the culmination. That, that, that's, that's how he is enthroned as king. That's to use the language of frozen. That's coronation day. That, that's what is happening when Jesus is nailed to the cross in our place to be our redeemer. That is how he declares himself to be the kind of king that he is. Not a kind of king who rules with force by consuming his enemies, but by showing himself to be a servant who uses his mighty arms to be stretched out to suffer in place of his enemies. When that becomes the power and strength of our king, it shapes the way we think about the kingdom we inhabit. And it is not one that is accomplished by force and power. Jesus dying for our sins is indeed good news. Do not hear me wrong. But it is the good news that makes possible the gooder news, if you will, that there is a now a way into his kingdom. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, says this. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is the, the declaration of who Jesus is. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, he keeps going. That's not the end of the gospel. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The gospel is good news for a purpose. It is not simply so that we can feel better about our mistakes and regret and shame, although it does that. The gospel makes a way for us to join Jesus in his kingdom now and to pray along with him 
May God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The the Lord's prayer is not, Lord, take us from earth into heaven. It is, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see how the gospel now has a wide scope and is much more than just you and your personal problems with sin? It has so much more to do than just our own guilt and shame, although it is no less than that. And so I'll close with this. The, the reason why all of this is important, the reason why us as a church having this value of gospel centrality is important is because it guards us from two extremes. It guards us from the one hand, the extreme of a crossless king and a kingless cross. And, and this is kind of where, where the church tends to kind of gravitate towards. On one hand, you have a crossless king. You have people who would be a part of the church saying, yes, I fully believe in this idea of a kingdom that we should be about the work of God and caring for the poor and feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. Yeah, totally. We should do that. But if there is no understanding of your own sin and that you are the problem with the thing that you're actually trying to remedy in the world, that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. If we don't recognize that, all of our efforts to try to care for people and love them will be rooted in nothing. You have a crossless king. But on the other extreme, to have a kingless cross that is only a message that is about how I feel better about my sin and how I can help you feel better about your sin and doesn't have an understanding that Jesus has come to reign on earth as it is in heaven, we're also missing out on the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that our God reigns through Jesus the King. He is rebuilding his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and he is doing so with us if we throw our lot in with him. To repent and believe the good news of the gospel is to say that whatever hope I had in a king or kingdom or power or authority has been cast aside, and my full allegiance and devotion is to Jesus, who is the only hope I have in life and in death to be forgiven, redeemed, restored, and made whole. When we place our faith, our trust, and allegiance in Jesus as king and trust in him as our only way to be forgiven and redeemed, then we are saved not just from something, but we are saved for something. Because the gospel is good news with a purpose. And so may we be a people who believe in this fullness of the gospel that brings hope and healing to our our lives and to the lives of those around us. This is what it means to be a people who centered upon the gospel. May it be so. Let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you in this time recognizing that it is only by the power of your spirit that we are able to call you Father. Lord Jesus, you are the one who has made it possible for us to, to be redeemed and forgiven. We boast in your cross alone as the only means by which we can be saved. But Lord, would you help us to see that that is, the, that is the pathway into your kingdom now and forever? And would that shape the way in which we live our lives for you and before you? And so Lord, help us as a people to center our lives, our minds, our hearts, everything about who we are. May we center ourselves upon the good news of the gospel that our God reigns amidst the ruins, amidst the destruction, amidst what appears to be decisive defeat. May we declare boldly that our God reigns. Lord Jesus, be seen as our King. 
I ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.